Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. At the start of November, I was in Dublin Airport in a cafe that was selling mince pies at the till and playing Christmas songs on loop. All the classics, you know, Elton John, Wizard, Mariah. I am partial to a bit of cheese, whether the foodstuff or the metaphorical kind, but not at the start of November. What I deem appropriate in a Christmas countdown, you know, how much cheese and when to consume it, is informed by the job that I had when I was 16. We were coming up on the millennium. The Celtic tiger was still warming up to a roar. And after school and at weekends, I worked in a small supermarket in Gart, South County Galway. There was a seasonal rhythm to supermarket work in the late 90s, but it was gradual and it was contained. In 2021, middle aisle specials in Aldi or Lidl mark ski pants season, home gym season, barbecue season, and that which begins a week or two before Halloween and is referred to in my house as German biscuit season. (laughs) Christmas, for which the harbingers are Stalin and Lebkuchen. In the 90s, Christmas in the supermarket began with the arrival in the franchise delivery of ingredients needed for Christmas baking. Jars of mincemeat, an apricot jam, marzipan, royal icing, mixed peel, candied fruit, tubs of glacé cherries, almond essence. After that came the Christmas music. Head office sent only one CD per month, so you can imagine how many times I'd hear each song in a week. For December, on the hour, every hour, we'd have what I then regarded as the more unfortunate Christmas songs, Mistletoe and Wine, or Keeping the Dream Alive, which is a Christmas standard despite having nothing to do with Christmas, or David Essex's A Winter's Tale, in which he lamented his lover ditching him, leaving behind only footprints in the snow. I associated these songs with the peculiar delectables on the shelves, and so as the days rolled on, I came to love them, in secret, until now. It was a perfect, cheesy storm. The momentum of the Christmas countdown, the novelty of the foods, the over-identification with the schmaltzy lyrics. Like I was 16. There was probably some boy or another I was thinking too much about. While David Essex crooned about whoever broke his heart, I stocked the shelves at last with the real fripperies. But fewer than we would come to expect in the age of breathy M&S ads that extolled all that was hand-rolled, sumptuously enfolded, or crevossier-drenched. Instead, there were tins of Danish butter cookies and USA biscuits, boxes of roses no one wanted to get the task of wrapping because they were infernally trapezoidal, Cuisine de France mince pies, selection boxes shaped like Christmas stockings, packages of Herbie stuffing, bottles of Sandman port and Harvey's Bristol cream and Blue Nun, of course, for the very urbane. 
and the Christmas RTE guide? When the bumper issues came in, suggesting that we spend at least a week slothfully watching old classics in our pyjamas, it was unequivocally Christmas. From then till Christmas Eve, there would be full trolleys at the till, harassed but cheerful customers, and managers in new jumpers actually deigning to pack bags. It felt meaningful, properly affecting to a kid just figuring out the tempo of adult life. At other times of the year, space wasn't made on the shelves for items that were scrumptious just for the sake of it. Managers hid in offices. There weren't sinfully early showings of classics on the telly. Hearing a winter's tale eight times a day would have been much harder to stomach if you hadn't been promised a week off and your weight in biscuits. It said, retail staff detest Christmas music. And I imagine the creators above in the cafe in Dublin airport listening to Stay Another Day in November would qualify. <laughs> but this never happened with me. I worked up an appetite for what was syrupy stacking shelves in a supermarket and never got so full that I felt sick. For this is the advantage of keeping Christmas contained in December. And after we closed on Christmas Eve and the boss brought us to the pub for a hot port and a pat on the back, I would join my mam for midnight mass, so full of toddies or sticky ballads that I was moved even by religion. <laughs> 16, hopped up on the glorious odysseys of the past couple of weeks, tears rolling down my face for what seemed to be no reason at all. The nights are colder now Maybe I should close the door It was December the 20th, 2010. Ireland's lowest recorded temperature ever, minus 17 degrees. The landscape looked like something out of a Tolstoy novel. In England, where they're better than we are at keeping records, they were able to work out that the temperature in the Midlands there was the lowest since 1649. And on December the 22nd, I wanted to cancel Christmas and go to bed, preferably with a couple of bottles of wine for company. Usually, I relish every last bauble on the tree, love the magic of the nativity story, and in defiance of my adult status, expect to be visited by Santa Claus. And in 2010, it looked as though we'd have a white Christmas, singing jingle bells as we dug out cars each morning. On the 19th, dear neighbor and friend Peter, still much missed since his premature death, braked his trusty ancient estate car as he went past, cheerily calling, I told you not to buy that rear wheel drive, as I toiled. He then dug it out for me while I enriched my vocabulary at his expense. <laughs> my plans for Christmas included a lunch party for eight on Christmas Eve, a fully festive four-course job with the same guests I'd had for many years. 
On the 23rd, there was another tradition. Another group of friends were always the staple of an afternoon drink session of champagne and my legendary, I like to think, mince pies. Legendary low temperatures would be no deterrent. And on Christmas Day, I would be royally and elegantly entertained, as always, by other friends. But December 22nd was the last straw. We'd been plagued by water rationing for days, with Dublin City Council issuing notices about when and for how long we'd be cut off each day. As I recall, the explanation was the extreme cold was making the pipes swell underground, and they had to try to ensure that they didn't burst as a result. It didn't sound reassuring. Then I opened the deep freeze, full of the festive fare for two sessions of hospitality, to find it had died, and I was faced with drawers full of grey mush. About the only thing that seemed still to be whole and entire were the two enormous fillets of beef intended for Christmas Eve. Any chance of a replacement freezer before Christmas, I appealed to several electrical suppliers. I can still hear them laughing. <laughs> Unwilling to let more than 100 quid's worth of best beef reach smelling point, I toiled through the almost knee-deep snow to friend Mary, whose freezer, I hoped, would have a bit of space. It did, bless her heart. But the water, the water. In or around the 21st, Dublin City Council generously announced that cuts and rationing would be abandoned over the three days of Christmas. It wasn't their problem, of course, that the frequent cuts had ensured that certain domestic customers had burst and frozen pipes. Mine were frozen. Not even a drip from any tap in the house. I called an emergency number, which turned out to be part of the operational end of things at DCC. And no, I was assured lugubriously, there wouldn't be any chance of my having any water until the 28th. And he personally had had, frightful word beginning with F, enough. I got the vague feeling that I was the most recent in a long, long line of callers. But I'd had enough too, I thought. Already I could smell myself, my last shower of three-day-old memory. Enter friend Peter again. He and his wife Natasha trudged the snow-drifted half-mile between our houses, carrying a five-gallon container of water. Anyway, said Tash consolingly, we all wash too much but I noticed she was keeping well upwind of me. <laughs> the lunch party was clearly off, but like the woman Crosby and Sinatra memorably sang about in high society, I'm a game gal. So the drinks party on the 23rd was still on. There's a rather pretty early 19th century table in my hall. A rising pile of snow boots, wellies and galoshes mounted under it, snow and mush melting inexorably off them, to lap gently across the floor, the only liquid apart from alcohol in the house. And then there was the kitchen. I didn't dare let anyone in in case they'd stick to the floor or see the greasy dishcloths with which I was making an entirely ineffective effort to clean work surfaces for relays of mince pies and canapes as they left the oven. The sticky baking trays piled up in the dry sink the heap threatening to topple on the floor. 
The five-gallon container was being reserved for spot body washing and decanting into the loos. I began wondering what the symptoms of botulism were. <laughs> Unbelievably, it seemed to be a good party. And then there'd been another glow of Christmas spirit. I'd come home the previous evening to find my front entry and the pavement outside the house clear, gleaming, and free of the knee-high snow and ice. The Christmas fairy was my niece Jane, then a teenager, and knowing that guests were expected, she trudged round and cleared it. Christmas 2010 may have been a bit of a washout in some respects, but somehow I have fond memories. I have a thing about clean hands, and I can trace it right back to my first piano lessons, age six. Before you got to touch the pristine white keys of Mrs. Frame's upright piano, you washed your hands in hot water and imperial leather soap, and then you dried them on a clean starched towel, a whiff of that exotic luxurious aroma still brings me right back there. My next piano teacher was Sister Frances, a good shepherd nun who announced one day as we sat side by side at the piano that she thought I should take organ lessons. Her thinking was, and the phrase she used, because it's stuck in my mind ever since, was because every parish needs a priest that can play the organ. I was 12. <laughs> so that's kind of jumping guns, counting chickens, and putting carts before horses all in one. The truth was, although I loved music and although the piano was a huge part of my life, I never wanted to be a classical pianist. I'd had a traumatic experience at Nuri Fesh playing Handel's Arrival of the Queen of Sheba, where my right foot shook so much, I kept holding the sustain pedal down. And the whole thing ended up like the Queen of Sheba arriving in a pot of soup. <laughs> but I did fancy the idea of being the piano man, the guy at the center of the crack, the person who would check on a night out to see was there a piano, uh, what sort of nick was it in, was it locked, would it be okay if, you know, later on, so I worked out chords for TV themes, chart classics of the time, from Hard Jones to Axel F. And I spent ages at our piano at home, tinkering around, making my own funky arrangements of songs in Irish from a glorious little book called Cas Oran. My version of Natlagana was uh, an undiscovered classic. <laughs> my father had a lovely singing voice and came from that generation of 
if you're going to sing a song, sing an Irish song. So for him, it was the Isle Clada Ring, the Cliffs of Dunning, or the Greenmoor Hare. And I have to say, it's a perpetual sadness that for all the long evenings we sat in the living room looking at each other, and all the Saturday nights that he belted out songs in the kitchen while enthusiastically burning sausages to Cayley House, I never even thought to accompany him on the piano singing one of his songs. I have played piano in the National Concert Hall before. We come down from Newry to Dublin for a big competition when I was about 17. And when no one was looking, I sneaked out past the eight double basses, the big heavy door, onto the stage and found the grand piano unlocked. So I played the Wexford Carol to a silent ovation from an empty hall. Thank you, Dublin. And then one day, a son came along who also played the piano. A few Christmases ago, I realized that while I could do the Wexford Carol and a bit of Carolyn and the boys from the County Armagh in whatever key you want, Spanish Train by Christoburg, this guy, this guy can do Wuthering Heights, Bohemian Rhapsody, all the Abba stuff, Elton John, you name it, all the trimmings, fistfuls of notes in all the right order, augmented and diminished chords, and if he doesn't know it, he'll work it out quicker than me. And as a parent, that's both exhilarating and sobering, because the genes have worked and found a new generation, but they're stronger, they're sharper, and they're quicker. So over time, I found myself at the family and friends Christmas parties, not in the hot seat at the keyboard, calling the next song, but sitting on my cajon, a little sort of tea chest, box, percussion thing beside the piano, tapping out a rhythm and watching young golden balls working his magic. <laughs> Prouder than punch, like. But waiting like a greyhound in a trap for somebody to call a tune that he didn't know. <laughs> Ready to jump in and remind people, I used to be good at this, you know. <laughs> One day I came home from work, and before I got to the front door, I could hear Mihalo Sulawine's beautiful, sweeping piano piece, Woodbrook, one of my favourites, coming from our living room. And I stopped and listened, wondering, is that a recording? And then I realized it was the son playing the piano. And it's kind of hard to describe what that feels like. A child of yours has learned a piece that you love, that he loves, and that's momentous and significant and moving. But it's more than that. It's like when we used to talk about handing on the faith, that they grasp something that you showed them, like catching a first fish, so that in all they do and in all the places they go in life, they kind of hold on to something from you.
I always think there's a moment in my kitchen when the boxes come out with the Christmas decorations before we start to decorate the house. It's always a moment that I take a pause and I think of, especially this year, what has happened in the previous year and what will happen in the year coming. And this is a poem about that moment, fairy lights. Hidden there in the muddle of boxes of half-melted candles, weather-worn Santas, and bright, sparkled baubles. Put away last January, wrapped in air bubbles, wrapped in memories of another Christmas, wrapped in hope for the new year. They are there, hidden in full sight, in the tangled wires, in the jumble of entwined green, in the jagged edges of broken lights, in the colors, blue, green, red, blue, green, red, in the missing bulbs and blank spaces, hidden in the mist of these annual frustrations, how impossible it will be to unravel these strings. How faint is the hope of these lights lighting. How time didn't unwind the wire web. And yet, there in full sight is their message. Not everything works out the way we wish. Not everything endures. But there, all through that tangled mess, is all the glory of survivors, all the hope for the new holiday season, all the blessings from these gifts of wonder. Christmas in London, and there was fog everywhere. The sort of miasma so well described in Dickens' novels. It swaddled the streets. I was walking along Cricklewood Broadway, heading for the bus stop. And from there, I'd begin my journey home. And the words of a song were spinning round and round in my head. It had lodged there, a veritable earworm. My first winter in London, and I was traveling home for Christmas. Lack of money meant I was taking the long way back. Trains and mail boat rather than flying. The song in my head had just reached number one in the charts. Peter, Paul and Mary's leaving on a jet plane. This was December 1969, and whether you liked the tune or not, it seemed to be playing everywhere. 
As I negotiated the pea soup or gloom, I envied those fortunate enough to be leaving on a jet plane. Aer Lingus were making great play of new aircraft on their short-haul flights, but that luxury was way beyond my budget. Tendrils of fog wrapped about my legs like a doting cat, but without the warmth. I shouldered a duffel bag stuffed with presents, cheap shirts and knockoff perfumes bought from the Edgware Road markets. That was where I purchased the army surplus greatcoat that I was wearing. British army surplus, that was. <laughs> On the London underground, I navigated tube stops like a pro. Hadn't I swapped the small cottage on a by-road off a by-road for the lights, noise, and excitement of this metropolis? I was a long-haired teenager of the swinging 60s, a metropolitan who knew it all. At Euston Station, I bought a seat for the boat train to Hollyhead. When it stopped at Crewe, I tried to clear the window, but all I saw through the greasy smear was yet more fog. It was two days before Christmas. A couple of hours into the journey and the singing was breaking out, as were cans and bottles of Watney's, Worthington and Double Diamond. Someone was playing a harmonica, attempting to accompany a ragged chorus of leaving on a jet plane. <laughs> and here I was, the lad who had become so condescendingly arrogant listening to Astral Weeks and to Rory Gallagher, now singing along as the train took us further and further from the streets of London. It was dark when we boarded the mailboat for Dunleary. The fog seemed to have followed us. There was even a fog of tobacco hazing the occupants of the below decks bar. We held on to our pints as the boat rocked and rolled across the Irish Sea. The rapport and the singing from the train continued, although my British Army greatcoat was by now drawing a few hostile glances. <laughs> we arrived into Dublin seasick, haggard and tired. It was by then a damp Christmas Eve, and I was glad of that greatcoat. I finally got to Houston Station and prepared for the final two legs of my odyssey but I had overlooked Christmas timetable changes. The last train to Kilkenny had long departed. The nearest station I could get to was Port Leash, 42 miles short of my rural Kilkenny destination. I must have seemed a sorry sight that evening on the road outside Port Leash. My hopeful thumb extended to each passing vehicle. By then the fog had deepened. We were drowning in it. Any cars that passed were travelling at a crawl. My desperate appearance would have loomed out of nowhere. And who wants to stop for a long-haired spectre in an ill-fitting army greatcoat? The hours ticked by. Fingers of fog clung to me like frosting on a cake. Fewer and fewer cars ventured abroad. I listened to and counted church bells as they chimed out midnight and began to give up hope. The overconfident youth who'd shouldered his duffel bag on Cricklewood Broadway now stood bedraggled and befuddled on a dark roadside. I never did get to find out the name of the priest who finally stopped for me. 
I stood disbelieving his brake lights as they glowed like Christmas decorations in the murk. When I explained where I was heading, he just smiled and told me not to worry. He'd drive me directly to the front door. He turned up the car heater and turned down the radio. I believe I nodded off listening to Peter, Paul and Mary. <laughs> but maybe I just dreamt that. In the small hours of that Christmas morning, I threw my duffel bag into the kitchen and embraced my mother. We thought you weren't coming, she said. And why in God's name didn't you come home by plane? Sunday Miscellany live at Christmas with the RTE Concert Orchestra and special guests recorded at the National Concert Hall earlier on this month. The readings were Christmas Cheese by Lisa McInerney. 2010, The Christmas Ireland Sang the Song with Volga Boatman by Emer O'Kelly. Piano Man by John Toll. Fairy Lights, a poem by Denise Blake. And Fuddled in Christmas Fog was by Joe Carney. The music was all performed by the RTE Concert Orchestra with leader Mia Cooper and conducted by Gavin Maloney. A Winter's Tale by Mike Batt and Tim Rice, arranged by Thomas Quigley and Kathleen Flynn and sung by Cormac Kenevy. Largo from Vivaldi's Winter, arranged by Gavin Murphy and featuring RTE Concert Orchestra leader Mia Cooper. Woodbrook by Mihalo Sulavoin was played by Conor Linehan and featured Michael Seaver on soprano saxophone. Carul Lockgorman, The Wexford Carol, arranged by Cormac McCarthy and sung by Seamus O'Flaherty and Quiva Nilaherty. And finally, Leaving on a Jet Plane by John Denver, arranged by Gavin Murphy and sung by Lisa Lamb. On sound were Kieran Dunn and Liam Mullen. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And there'll be more from that event on Christmas Miscellany next week. That's Christmas morning, just after the nine o'clock news. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.